1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. Of the many barriers to a more robust presence for systems approaches in the academy, the relative scarcity of sufficient introductory textbooks in the field stands out as a particular irritant. In the decades since the publication of von Bertalanffy's General Systems Theory in 1968, a vast agglomeration of conceptual frameworks and methodological heuristics in the study of systemic phenomena has continued to accrue, while the facilitation of entry points to the field, combining both accessibility and thoroughness, have largely failed to keep pace. George E. Mobus and Michael C. Calton have leapt bravely into that breach with their co-authored volume, Principles of Systems Science, out from Springer in 2015. As the title indicates, Mobus and Calton are firmly focused upon an approach to systems grounded in the traditional scientific method, and while by no means objective realists of any remotely naive sort, their project most definitely leans towards more positivistic approaches to the study of systemic phenomena, clearly separating their work from the wider and arguably softer fields of systems thinking. Leaning on Herbert Simon's notion of the near decomposability of hierarchical systems, as well as the computational accounts of contemporary cognitive science, the book's 700-plus pages are carefully and thoroughly structured to guide the reader through an array of crucial systemic topics, including notions of system boundary, dynamics, emergence, complexity, and adaptation. Of particular note is the thorough and rigorous treatment cybernetics receives within the overall scope of the system sciences, something that makes this book something of a bridge builder between two fields with blurry boundaries between them that too often seem to jockey for the historical high ground and supreme position of being meta to each other. While clearly keeping cybernetics within the wider conceptual margins of system science, the central role that it is given to the very notion of what constitutes a system is sure to satisfy many who straddle both sides of the debate, but consider cybernetics their disciplinary, intellectual, and ethical home. Carefully balancing scope with detail, this sweeping work of diligent scholarship does much to provide the kind of foundational textbook of which upper-level undergraduate and graduate students have long been in need. And so without any further ado, let's turn to my conversation with co-author George Mobus. George Mobus, welcome to New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. It's great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, thank
0: you for the invitation.
1: So um, we'll begin in our traditional manner and ask you if you would uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your academic background, your intellectual journey, and how you came to such a deep uh, engagement in the world of systems.
0: Well, given that I'm 73 years old, that might take a while. So, all right, well, I'll try us- to re- I'll try to abbreviate it a little bit here. Sure. Um, it it just seems like I was running into systems kinds of stuff. My entire life. Um, for example, I joined the Navy, went on to a submarine where I had to learn all of the various subsystems, uh, mechanical, hydraulic, all that kind of stuff. And that, I found that very interesting to see how they all work together. Uh, I originally set out to be a zoologist, a marine zoologist. Uh, in the course last year or so of um, my undergraduate degree, I ran into some incredibly interesting work having to do with the way energy flow through systems works to organize the systems. And all of this just sort of started to make a lot more sense. I'd always been interested in, uh, you know, how life began and and how it works. And, and um, the systems approach was starting to look like it might provide some solutions, some answers to that. Um, then in, I, I ended up uh, working in industry as a, as a software engineer at first. Uh, and one of the uh, jobs that I had been given, I completed so quickly that they said, well, look uh, let's look around and see, you're pretty good at computers. Can you figure out a way to automate some of our business systems? And uh, so I started thinking about how do you do that? Uh, simultaneously with that, I was working on an MBA because I, I saw myself as being in the business world forever and ever. Um, but in the in the course of getting that MBA, I once again was uh, looking at systems. And so my master's thesis ended up being about the application of systems, thinking to uh, the analysis of, of um, business information systems. Um, later, I ended up uh, starting a company for solar energy uh, management. And um, uh, I was once again then faced with, well, what is the energetics of all of this? And um, in the Over the course of time, I got to thinking, um, how much energy does it take to produce a solar energy system? These were thermal hot plate collectors on roofs, rooftops back in the 80s. And uh, I did a little calculation and and lo and behold, discovered that it probably took more energy to manufacture and um, install these solar collectors than they would ever produce in terms of, of heating a workspace or a living space. So it was little things like that, that over the course of time, it just sort of um, dawned on me that there was something deeper and more important about systems than I had really completely understood. Uh, Finally, I got a PhD in computer science uh, being the closest, to uh, something that would be considered system science. There, there really weren't any system science uh, departments or, or uh, something that you could point at in academia and say that's system science. Uh, so I ended up getting a Ph.D. in, in computer science. And it wasn't until uh, a number of years later that I was here at the University of Washington And uh, just basically a lot of things came together and I said, hey, there's no books out there on system science. No wonder there's no academic courses on it. And so that's what led me to uh, work on that book.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, Along with your colleague, Michael Calton. Yeah, right. And so can you say a little bit more about, I mean, some of this is obvious and, and you've pointed to it, but maybe this will segue into some of the things you talk about uh, in the introduction of the book and uh, perhaps in, in the first section as well, where, you, where you're just talking about a sort of general outline of an introduction to systems science, the helicopter view, as you put it. Uh, but I think that might feed into also in, in, in why it was so important for you to fill the gap of a systems science textbook, and obviously there's uh, books about systems that exists and, and, and many different types of them, but there was a particular niche that the two of you wanted to fill with this very authoritative you know 745 page textbook on systems science, and and I, I guess I want to draw a particular attention to the word science too, because there's systems thinking and there's systems theory and there's systems science, and they're all related. But this is very much a book in systems science. So anything you want to tell us about about that um, particular niche you wanted to fill and and taking us into the sort of first early parts of the book?
0: Right. Um, The the insight, I think, uh, that Mike and I brought to this was uh, in having surveyed many, many books. As you say, there, there are a lot of books out there about systems in one form or another. Uh, there's also a growing interest in systems engineering. Uh, but as we surveyed the uh, uh, landscape of systems literature, we couldn't find anything that really qualified as a comprehensive um, and, uh, 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 coverage of the topic of systems from a scientific standpoint and, uh, identifying what, what major principles are, seem to be at work in the field of systems, meaning that, um, uh, whatever you consider a system ought to have some of these very relevant, uh, principles at work. For example, there are going to be, um, A system is often seen as a network of components or subsystems that are, that network is defined by interrelationships between those subsystems. So basically we, um, I was on sabbatical in um, uh, New York state and uh, at a conference there, um, I met the publisher from Springer who asked me, Is there, did I have any ideas for books and what did I see as being a need? And I said, well, I don't see any comprehensive books on system science. And uh, I think if that's going to be, um, uh, if there's going to be an academic subject, uh, even possibly department, that would um, you know, teach system science to, uh, students, there's going to need to be some sort of uh, comprehensive textbook that will cover the subject. So after talking about that, and I came back to, uh, Tacoma and, uh, met with Mike and he agreed that, that something like that was necessary. So we set about doing it we signed a contract with Springer and five years later we had a book.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you how long it took you because, man, it is absolutely comprehensive. I mean, it's really something that belongs uh, on the shelf of everyone who, who takes uh, work in systems uh, seriously. And even as someone who's read a number of the books that you've talked about, uh, there's much to be gained um, from any angle that you've come at systems from. This takes you all the way through um, the primary uh, r- real grounding in uh, the principles of it. So speaking of principles, you do. First of all, I just want to say you you make a lovely uh, description of system science as the kind of liberal studies of the twenty first century, and that the systems scientist is the person who's going to be able to help specialists integrate. Can you say just a little bit more about about what you mean by that?
0: Sure. The um, you know the objective of liberal studies is uh, getting people to be able to use critical thinking, uh, to have a broad knowledge base upon which they can draw to um, look at various problems or various aspects of the world uh, and try try out different perspectives, things of that nature. These are not memorization skills uh, as as education typically tends to focus on. and it occurred to us that uh, system science could fill a role like that because in order to think about whole systems, you have to have multiple perspectives. You have to have critical thinking abilities and so forth. And it's very applicable to any number of different um, uh, kinds of systems, whether we're talking about a social system or um you know, a, uh, a Boeing seven forty seven or uh, any any variety of complex and complex adaptive systems. Uh, you you really need to have that broad capability. So that that was our thinking. That that uh, we th- we view system science as being a, um, a an umbrella to the other sciences in that when you go into the other sciences you are maybe you're looking at a specific subject area but you are going to be using a lot of systems thinking to uh, attack that area especially today when things are getting so complicated Uh, if you look at biology uh, systems biology is now the sort of the main game Mm
1: Um, you talk about what is a science in general and then what is system science in particular? And there are, what are some of the things that you can say really hold from some of the other sciences across system science? And there's a couple of features that make it, uh, quite different. So, uh, what can you tell us about that?
0: Uh, well, yeah. So just to follow up on a a thought that I was addressing there. So system science can be found applicable within all of the other sciences, um, and there are what we call, um, well, they're called various things by various people, but uh, either isomorphies, where you have something that you can find true in, say, a biological system, and then you find the same thing is true in a, uh, a, a commercial company. The, the same patterns exist. Um, so that's, that's kind of why we claim it's, it's an umbrella for all the other sciences. So the sciences have worked out a way of developing a topical knowledge base within the, the framework of their science. And the methodologies that they've developed are uh, generally applicable uh, to their topical area. Whereas system science and what systems thinking does for these other sciences is help organize the the broader aspects of that topic. Um, so we you end up with a more holistic vision of how your topic fits into the larger area. I I always come back to biology because. Uh, from the time I started out uh, taking high school biology when they really they were just just beginning to come to grips with what DNA was mm. we take it from that to where we are today where um, uh, you know you can you can look at the genome as a kind of program that that gets... Um, Gradually uh, run, so to speak, within cells as uh, as embryos develop and and as as brains operate and so on. It's just so vast now, and yet there are some aspects of all those that really do go together. They they integrate. So that's what I think system science brings to the table. It's not going to replace any of the sciences. It's just going to be a kind of organizing principle for the body of knowledge the sciences produce.
1: Mm-hmm. You do mention that uh, to some degree it can sacrifice or shift, at least, from prediction to dynamics and emergence. Is that, have I got that correct?
0: Uh, yeah. It, uh, what we can do is, so just explaining emergence uh, for a moment. hmm Um, Typically, people view emergence as being uh, some properties or behaviors of a complex system that uh, they might not have been able to predict uh, with foresight, but can certainly post-stick. That is to say, go back and look at the mechanisms and say, "Oh, yeah, now that's that's exactly right." That that mm-hmm. came out. So it's it's these new properties and behaviors that um, are they could be problematic. Uh, what the systems engineering community is is struggling with right now is how do we produce these extremely complex systems, largely made possible by things like the internet. Um, that are that are going to behave in ways that we actually didn't design them to behave, simply because of the interaction, complex interactions of so many heterogeneous pieces, parts. Um, so yeah, you you may lose some predictive capabilities in some cases. Um, when you mention dynamics, of course, we're talking about modeling, for example, a system as much as we understand it um, to the point where we can set up inputs to the model and, uh, and and observe the model's behavior and then use that as a basis for predicting the uh, the real system. I mean, we see that in climate change models, for example. We, we can't actually say specifically this is what the outcome will be, but we can maybe list off a few scenarios with a few uh, variations that um, provide us with a pretty good idea of what to expect, and then we just have to see what the real system does.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you give a really great uh, list of um, uh, the... Uh, characteristics of systems, um, bounded networks, um, process organized, things like that. And and, and obviously, we can't talk about all of them. And it's a bit silly to take something so holistic and say, can you tell me the most important ones? Because, of course, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't work like that. Uh, But I guess I wanted to focus a bit on the idea about systems and their ability to contain models of other systems, including themselves. That seems to be really key because system science, so much as it plays out in the book, is, is going to talk about modeling. So can you talk a bit about, about systems and their ability to contain models of other systems and models of themselves?
0: Right. Um, there's, a, there's a proviso that we put in there that um, uh, probably ought to mention. It says uh, sufficiently complex systems can Mm -hmm. have models of themselves. Uh, But in general, the idea of having a model means that the structure of a system uh, is such that it demonstrates what you might call an expectation of, um, I'll say messages or behaviors of uh, other systems, other systems which they interact with on a, say, a regular basis. So their, their very structure is a reflection of those prior interactions that they've had. Now, we sort of draw a line uh, in, um, at the point where a, a system is, just a simple system, uh, is uh, capable of interacting with other such simple systems by virtue of its structure and as an example, let's take an atom. Uh, atoms, not, not any of the noble gases, of course, but, but your generic atom, uh, the, the de- design of it, the, the structure of it, uh, has these uh, valence electrons on their outermost shell. And those electrons interact with valence shells of other atoms. So you could say that any atom has a model of what can happen with any other atom by virtue of the fact that they can have those kinds of interactions. Now that, that might be stretching the word model a little bit, but um, if one thinks about it long enough, one can become convinced that yes, uh, these atoms have a priori expectations in the sense that they're already prepared to have those kinds of interactions, chemical interactions. We get to the level of more complex things like living cells, and uh, it, is, uh, it becomes a lot more apparent that the cell contains within it a model of things in its environment which are important to it. Uh, the mere fact that, uh, for example, the genome can interact with elements of the environment by genes being turned on, being turned off, um, activated, deactivated, whatever, uh, is an indication that the mechanisms inside the genome had a priori expectations built right into it as to what the environment might do that was end up having uh, an impact on the cell's uh, metabolism. Mm. And then finally, you get to the level of more complex brains, in particular uh, mammals and and birds, um, you have this very interesting capability of, of, um, well, learning uh, is involved, but of constructing models within the brain, within the neural networks of the brain that reflect the brain's if you will, beliefs about itself. So you and I have our self-image. We have, we have what we think we are modeled in the brain, and we got that by virtue of our interactions with other people uh, building up over time. So this is, this is the intent, that there be um, uh, a notion that uh, the more complex systems are, <clears throat> the more capable they are of um, learning or evolving, then they they will, by virtue of the need for them to generate scenarios about what the, f- the future might bring, uh, become stronger. And and that's what happens. They build up these models.
1: Great, and we will probably get more into the notion of uh, the anticipatory nature of some systems, and and obviously complex adaptive systems, and well, and as well, and as you say, this need to build up these models and to have expectations through which to guide uh, learning, etc. In the second part of the book, and we're, again, because this book is so vast and so expansive, we're just going to sort of hop to different sort of islands of knowledge along the way here. The second part of the book moves into structural and functional aspects of systems after giving us this sort of general um, checklist at the beginning of of some of their features. Right. Um, Can you talk a bit about this distinction you make between realized complexity and potential complexity in systems?
0: Sure. Sure. Um this is, this is a, a, a concept of development where uh, if you were to throw, let, let's kind of keep it simple. If you were to throw a bunch of atoms, carbon atoms, hydrogen atoms, um, and, and nitrogen atoms, and oxygen atoms, and so forth, into a vat and uh, in, in their atomic or bimolecular form, and uh, then uh, add the right kind of energy to it. What what is present at the beginning is a group of atoms that don't really form a system as such, except that they have the potential to form a system. That is, they can begin to um, form uh, complex chemical bonds uh, with one another, and uh, also to circulate to, to, because the energy flows is going through that system, they have the uh, potential to um, uh, form convective cycles. And this further adds to sort of the complexity. So what we're saying is that at, at the start, initially, there is a um, there's, there's not a uh, complex, system in existence, but it has all the, the components that are there have the potential to form such systems. The, uh, the paradigm example is the origin of life. We, it's still a uh, something of an open question as to how this came about, but we know for sure that it was based on the fact that uh, the um, uh, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, uh, phosphorus; those those elements have the right uh, atomic weight, the right configuration of valence electrons, and so forth. That if they are uh, somehow constrained, say by um, uh, one one common theory is that they actually started out being um, adhered to uh, uh, crystal structures, clays, and uh, with the right energy flow through there we start getting the formation of proto metabolism. And so we went from a a potential situation to a realized situation in which the system now has all the characteristics that, that uh, we look for in something that we call a system. Hope that helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, when we get into the the third part of the book, the, uh, another thing I, I want to get to is the adaptrode system because I think something that's important for our listeners to know about you is that, uh, again, you mentioned your computer science background. Uh, this has not all just been strictly theoretical for you. You And it reminds me of some of the uh, machinery and inventions of some of the early cyberneticians, particularly the British ones, uh, Ross Ashby, etc., cetera, uh, devi- devising and creating... Uh, artifacts, robots, etc, that um, explore some of the uh, some of the features that you and model some of the features you've been describing. So at any point you feel you want, you want to talk about the adapt road, (laughs) and how it fits into the uh, the subject matter, please do take us in that direction. part three, you get to the intangible aspects of organization, maintaining and adapting. So once we've got systems that have realized a certain level of of, uh, complexity, and are sufficiently complex to be able to have models of themselves, models of their environment, um, we get into these really important distinctions that you draw between information, meaning, knowledge, and communications. So there's a lot in there to unpack, obviously. So can you just sort of Talk us through those those uh, categories uh, as you uh, as you break them down in the book.
0: Okay, well, um, uh, let me focus on the uh, distinction between information and knowledge. Uh, we'll sort of hold meaning and communications to the side for a moment, um, but there is a, a a tremendous amount of confabulation in, both in the in the technical literature and um, in common usage, uh, where people will often uh, substitute information and knowledge one for the other. Uh, for example, people talk about the, the information that is encoded in the uh, genome, in the DNA sequence. Um, and actually, it wasn't just me. This, is, this goes back to work by Claude Shannon, who first sort of defined the measure of information in a message. Um, But the basic idea is that information is is the uh, capacity of a message that a system receives to surprise that system. And that is to say, the system before the communication occurs Uh, is not expecting a particular message. And so the amount of surprise is actually the measure of the amount of information. And and it's surprise because it didn't a priori have knowledge about what that message would contain. Uh, Knowledge, on the other hand, is a an arrangement of uh, the, the the structure of that system such that the arrival of a message does not surprise it, that it, it, it basically it dissipates the energy of the message without making any changes. So these two are duels of one another. Information is the sort of the ethereal stuff that moves, uh, with uh, carried in messages encoded in light beams, for example, or electrons or what have you. But, but that's the stuff that moves. Knowledge is the result of prior information causing a system to organize itself so as to expect those kinds of messages in the future. And uh, so DNA contains knowledge the, the, when the DNA is transcribed to messenger RNA, it is encoding that knowledge into a message to be sent out to the, uh, the cytoplasm, to the ribosomes, where proteins are going to get manufactured. But the, um, uh, the difference is that it's the traveling of the message conveying um, and encoding that is informational. And it's informational because if the ribosome already knew what it was supposed to code for, it would not be, I know it sounds silly, but it would not be surprised by the receipt of that messenger RNA. Um, And then nothing would happen. But uh, that's a, a distinction which I think will prove to be increasingly important. And I would hope that uh, people in technical areas where they 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 actually know that distinction already. I mean, they're they're quite well aware of it. But the word information is so generically used that um, they they don't feel uncomfortable using it in a sort of a, a switcheroo, if you will. Mm. So that uh, that's one aspect. Um, meaning is actually. The way in which uh, any message that is received that is informational uh, is going to be processed. So the meaning comes from the um, the processing end at the receiving end, and, uh, and and it's not really a property of the message per se. It's a property of how the receiver actually uh, handles that message, what what it does with it once it receives it.
1: Right, Heinz von Forster used to say that uh, the amount of information in a statement is measurable by the number of inferences the person receiving that statement can draw.
0: <laughs> right, right, yeah. and and that's the connection between what we typically call information and um, uh, entropy of the message. That uh, Harold Morowitz really nailed it uh, many many years ago, and he noted that the 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 desire to call a um, an information value entropy is based on the fact that it a priori to its receipt there are many 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 different um, possible configurations and so the more there are the higher the entropy of the receiver at the time of receiving mm.
1: so obviously these uh, this idea of information and knowledge and messages then, is really critical to uh, something a couple of topics that you spend a lot of time on, and are again, in this incredibly thorough manner, of the way that those play then into computation, and the role of computation and in control and computation gets a lot of attention in this book, as of course, does control because uh, control systems and and their grounding in cybernetics uh, are very important to the the larger field of, of system science. So, um, what are some of the major um, areas of both computation and control that you felt were really important to, to communicate uh, in the book? And I know these are, again, these are vast topics and they yeah. get a, va- a vast treatment in the book, but uh, what, what were some of, the, some of the most important things for you to, to really make clear in this book?
0: Well, one of the things I, I really felt strongly about is the revelation that I myself had uh, after getting more deeply into computer science was that um, there is, we would have to count the uh, the way in which biological systems, the brains, say, for example, in particular, um, process information and and construct knowledge. They, it is a computational process. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was show, uh, at least to, as best I could, the, the overlap between what we call... Biological computation and uh, you know uh, uh, mechanical computation. Um, the latter is characterized most strongly, of course, by a Turing machine model of computability, and uh, this is this leads us to the area of discussing things like algorithms, which have a, a very uh, uh, highly mathematical structure. Um, and can be dealt with uh, mathematically, and rigorously, uh, as compared to a biological computation, which is really sloppy. And in fact, uh, biological computation includes analog uh, processes as well. So, but, but they, they kind of meet in the middle because in the brain, the neurons generate what are called action potentials which are pulses that go down the axon and uh, are what excite the next neuron in the in the chain uh, and so it, it takes on a almost digital quality uh, and and w- what we know about digital uh, communications is that it is much more efficient than analog communications so I've, i always found that tr- tr- truly interesting uh, so I spend a fair amount of time in the book going over both of those uh, concepts, biological and um, uh, Turing machine or, or, or digital computing and so forth, and, and algorithms. Uh, and then talk a little bit about uh, fuzzy um, kinds of systems, because those are, are quite interesting. And they seem to uh, be right there in the middle of, of those uh, two um, ends of the, the spectrum on um, computation control theory. Uh, this is a really interesting, um, uh, area, the the whole concept of cybernetics, feedback, error, um, er- error feedback and, and adjusting, uh, some process in order to uh, reduce the error. Um, It's a natural outcome of uh, computation, in that it it is a computer that's actually, whether it's a biological computer or a microprocessor or whatever, but it's a computer that's actually taking in information uh, and then using some kind of um, decision model will will activate or or generate signals that go out to activators, actuators, and cause a change in the behavior of the system that is being controlled. And that is absolutely ubiquitous. It's certainly, certainly uh, ubiquitous in the living world, but most of our, the machines that we design now, the complex machines that we design, uh, all take this into account where they're using, um, microcomputers, for example, to actuate various other circuits or mechanical devices. Um, in the modern automobile, there's something like uh, 13 or 14, uh, on average, the uh, cheaper models probably don't have this many, 13 or 14 microprocessors, each monitoring a different, um, uh, you know, characteristic or, or, or physical um uh, property, and uh, and yet they all cooperate together to to uh, make the engine work as smoothly as possible. It's uh, it's pretty amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The and so we come to this idea of error correction and what is error. The error is the uh, difference between what a system's behavior ought to be and what it actually is in uh, real time to that system. Uh, so it gets off a little bit. Uh, you know, um, uh, the classic example of sailing a boat where you want the bow to go toward a particular island, say, and, and the wind is gonna blow you off this way or that way, um, or tides are gonna move you around or something, currents. Uh, and, and so what you're constantly doing is correcting the direction with the rudder, uh, the basic cybernetic principle. Well, that error is the same thing that I was talking about before that is information. You don't do anything until you receive information because you, what you expect is to, to um, have the, the correct behavior. What you get is something that deviates from that behavior. And that difference is an error that you can then quantifiably use to make error corrections. And uh, my work in robotics and, and um, artificial agents and so forth, uh, is, this was you know, my bread and butter for <laughs> quite a long mm-hmm. time.
1: Is this a good moment to tell us a little bit about the Adaptrode program or system and what it was and what it did and how you explored some of these ideas?
0: Sure. Yeah, it it really falls directly from that. Um, I uh, worked for a company in Southern California that built uh, digital controllers for large turbine engines, diesel engines, and so forth. Uh, And I started out actually as a programmer, a software engineer, and eventually got the top spot um, after many years. Um, but during that period of time, I designed quite a number of uh, control systems. And at some point I thought, you know, um, based on what we know about how the brain works, which at that time was still uh, in its very infant stages. But we did know a lot about neurons and how neurons worked. And we knew quite a lot about uh, how um, synapses, the, the, the incoming messages coming to a neuron come in through uh, a, an interface called a synapse. And we knew a good deal about the chemical processes that were taking place in the synapse that would cause it to become stronger uh, in terms of uh, being able to elicit a, uh, an action potential out of that neuron to the next neuron. And so I, I studied that quite a bit. And just about that same time, uh, the uh, domain of artificial neural networks was um, in a revolutionary stage because some folks that were really down the road from me always at uh, UC... San Diego, uh, a few other places, but, but a lot of the, the hotbed was right at UC San Diego. They had uh, developed the, uh, what's called the backpropagation learning algorithm. And what it does is uh, take an error signal, uh, feed it back into the network, and causes adjustments in what they call weights, which are the synaptic, can be thought of as synaptic efficacies. Um, and after training a neural network on lots and lots and lots of different example patterns, they would finally be able to classify or recognize other uh, examples of those kinds of patterns. And uh, this was this was big stuff. And today, uh, it's still being used in uh, these uh, self-driving automobiles are um, basically trained they're, they're neural networks that are trained in recognizing road conditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's pretty interesting stuff. But mm-hmm. that isn't the way neurons really work or or neural network, brain, brain, real brain neural networks don't work that way at all. <clears throat> so they're good at the pattern recognition job, but they they fail miserably on a number of other things. Um, kinds of tests, if you will, that I I won't go into, but they're certainly very important. Um, I was thinking to myself, why, why don't we just try to simulate what real synapses do? And not, not at the chemical level, but let's try to figure out what their dynamical properties are, and then write algorithms that work that way. And then plug those into neurons and those neurons into neural networks and see if we can't build some primitive artificial brain. So that the adaptrode is just my, my very clever name for uh, an artificial synapse, and um, it is capable of learning in real time and also uh, it's what we call reinforcement learning. But it also retains memories for longer and longer periods of time, depending upon how how uh, strongly it had been exposed to certain associative um, inputs. Mm-hmm. So it uh, it reflects that. And and the way I ended up deriving it is I took a, a fundamental control algorithm. Uh, well, actually, not a control algorithm, but a filtering algorithm. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, began playing with that because, in essence, what those synapses are doing is a kind of low-pass filtering, Um, if you know what that means, is you've got a frequency that's coming in and you don't want to um, uh, overreact to the frequency. So you filter out um, some of the higher higher, uh, frequency signals that are in there and only allow the low frequency signals to get through because they're, they're the ones that are most valid. Mm -hmm. Well, after playing with that for a couple of years, I actually discovered a, um, uh, that, that the neurons that, that were using these adaptroids, um, behaved extremely like real biological circuits. Uh, I was able to replicate, this is my PhD, um, dissertation. And I was able to replicate the learning and unlearning and forgetting and um, relearning dynamics of uh, real neural circuits. And so all well and good, lots of people thought, wow, that's pretty interesting, but I don't understand how it works. I understand mm-hmm. back propagation, but I don't understand your adaptor. so it really never... Um, Never hit the big time, as it were.
1: I, I find it really fascinating, though, and I find it adds a lot of um, a lot of the robust credibility to to the book uh, because. Um, a lot of the things you talk about in terms of the decay of memories and and, and things like that, and and, and theories of learning, etc., the fact that you have in 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 what I would say is the spirit of the of the old British cyberneticians, the Gordon Pasks and the uh, Ashby's, etc., actually made something in the metal, as they say, uh, that that can behave in that more um, biological uh, sense uh is a fascinating and uh I think more people should know about it. And uh and also to me just uh I love how much of the the, the things that you mentioned in the book where there'll be these footnotes referring to your adapter that you've actually been able to instantiate that in in the machinery to me just really speaks to the spirit of cybernetics uh resonating throughout the book and I just thought it was I really wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about it because uh While they may not be screaming for uh, commercial applications of the adaptrode, to me, that's the kind of artificial intelligence we need more of to help us understand uh, if if part of its project is really to help us understand these other processes. Um, You make a distinction between a few different types of control that I found really, really helpful uh, in terms of logistical control, tactical control and then strategic control and in in the spirit of system science, being able to go across different types of systems, biological organizations, et cetera. Uh, I found those were only strength this idea that you see these isomorphies across different types of systems. So can you talk about those, those three different categories?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, I like to say, I got a an MBA and, uh, in that process I uh, ran into, um, authors like Stafford beer and, um, Ashby and, and, others, um, recognizing that management, the management of, uh, uh a corporation, for example, uh, actually did have a, a, a structure that was reminiscent to me anyway, of the kinds of control, structures that one finds in homeostasis and autopoiesis in living cells and then more so in the physiology of uh, a a multicellular organism, a body. And uh, over the years, I I thought more and more about that and I said, well, what, what is really common here is this layering of control mechanism, feedback mechanisms. That and, and I, these days I'm using the term governance a little more than I am control because I, I found that too many people thought yes. thought control theory was strictly talking about top-down command and control. Uh, yeah, as you think about it in the military, um, but this architecture of uh, a layered system, where at the lowest layer in, in the system you've got your operational processes, <clears throat> which are using just standard feedback uh, control to maintain their proper running. Uh, you, you have some feed forward uh, messaging in order for the various processes that are in a chain, like, a, like a, a production chain or a supply chain or something of that nature, they have to cooperate to facilitate transfer of goods and energy and so forth. So uh, we have that going on at the lowest level. But at some point, uh, either because the system is severely complex and has many parallel pathways uh, and, and the distance between two processes that interact only through intermediaries, that we come to a, a point where uh, it's no longer practical to merely cooperate. And so you have to jump up uh, a level, so to speak, and uh, have a, a coordinating layer. So, uh, middle management, people who are basically uh, tasked with keeping the flow of things going, pardon me, keeping the flow of things going and um, uh, smoothly in a coordinated fashion. And uh, if you look carefully, you'll see there are two kinds of coordination that need to occur. Coordination between the internal components of a system and coordination between the system as a whole uh, uh, through uh, uh, specific or special um, internal processes uh, and the external world, the entities and so forth that, that uh, reacted with in in the external world. So, for example, your uh, sources of uh, resource, of supplies, of uh, raw material, and so forth. Uh, You have to coordinate the the body whole so that you can obtain those resources. Uh, And uh, then once you've got the resource, of course, you have to process them in a uh, a uh, uh, smooth and efficient manner. So that's where tactical uh, coordination is with the outside world. Logistical coordination is among the internal pieces. And then those two coordinators have to be talking to one another. They have to cooperate in order to make sure that uh, everything, when, once you get something in uh, that you need, you can process it. If you need something, you can tell the Tactical coordinator to go get it and so on and so forth. A strategic is the upper layer, and um, it's it's like a super tactical coordinator in that it's dealing mostly with the external entities, but not just the ones with which the the whole system interacts. It has to also take into account other entities that interreact with the the ones the primary ones, the ones that we're most interested in. Um, <clears throat> so and and it has to form a model that associates behaviors of those uh, those other entities with the potential future behavior of the entity that you care about or entities that you care about. And we're kind of, so this is an anticipatory system um, that is set up to not only do that, to to take all of that into account, but also make decisions about how the system might need to change, how it might need to change its internal structure in order to um, be better prepared for the, the future. So the kinds of decision models and uh, algorithms that the strategic um, uh, agent is going to use are going to be uh, different from the others, but have that same um, uh, coordinating, coordinating coordinators, if you will, and coordinating for making change uh, within the system or alternatively going after new resources, for example, new sources of resources. Uh, Mm -hmm. in a company, you might want to produce a new product because you see a new market out there and so on and so forth. So that three layered approach, and each of those is operating on very different timescales, uh, with the operational timescale being real time. And then the coordination timescales being over, um, you know, averaged over a uh, longer time relative to operations and then strategic being over the very longest time scales.
1: Right. I'm really glad you mentioned Stafford Beer as well, because I his his name was echoing through my mind as I read these sections. And I, I think that uh, your uh, classification uh, really is a wonderful um, additional frame through which to read uh, Stafford Beer's viable systems model uh, and that, that your uh the, the taxonomy that you've come up with really um, helps clarify that even more so uh, and how that extends across different types of systems. So I really, really appreciated that section. Uh, the fourth section deals with evolution and we're running short on time. So uh, we will uh, just mark for listeners that uh, there's a, 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 a wonderful and again, similarly detailed um Uh, section dealing with uh, different evolutionary processes in the growing complexity of systems but i did want to just touch on the last part part five which is the methodological aspects because ultimately of course uh system science we reflect back to some of the um, features that you outline in the first part of the book and you mentioned that systems of course can be changed can be improved and that ideally System science is going to enable us to ad- address some of the wicked problems and grand challenges or whatever names people want to use for those. Uh, so what are some of the key takeaways in terms of working with systems uh, that you want to highlight from the methodological aspects uh, part of the book?
0: Um I think, well, so chapter 12 and 13 regarding what basically a lot of people call systems engineering, but the systems analysis in chapter 12 is actually meant to uh, cover both scientific um, work as well as engineering work. Um, I'm I'm actually working on a second book right now that uh, explores this in much, much greater detail. And goes back and provides a a, um, uh, a, a more firm, if you will, uh, theoretical basis for why you would do this. But what we've been calling, what people have generally been calling systems analysis, turns out not to be very systemic and oftentimes not even analytic. <laughs> so um, what I set out to do was to show that you can, that you can follow a very rigorous process of, uh, sort of a recursive algorithm for starting at the top and then digging down to, through subsystems, to sub -sub subsystems, to sub sub -sub subsystems and so forth until you have a very firm grounding in what you can call the atomic components, which for, for example, a transistor is an atomic component in a computer uh, resistors and atomic component and so on and so forth. The, uh, you don't have to go any further because you know full well what the physics of those devices are, but the, the wiring up of those devices to form a useful circuit, you don't always know just by looking at it. You have to actually dig into it and, um, and measure aspects of it. Uh, so what I was worth shooting for was a, a much more holistic and in-depth and rigorous approach to doing systems analysis, uh, which it, it, it's the approach that I used throughout my career in looking at problems and solving problems and managing a company. And uh, it turns out that if you do this process in this rigorous fashion that I am suggesting you end up with a design at the end. You actually end up with everything that you need to know about how it's, uh, going to be put together and you can move right from analysis to specification writing. If you're doing, if you're doing systems engineering, um, I'm working with, uh, a organization called in the, um, uh, what's it stand for the, the, um, uh, anyway, the systems
1: engine is it international council of systems that's, engineers. Is that's that right?
0: the one. Thank you. All right. Uh, drew a blank, <laughs> but I'm working with them. Uh, they have a system science working group and we've been meeting regularly, um, uh, in, in cooperation with the, um, Federation for system science and engineering. Uh, and uh, working on, on these various definitions. And many of the people there are systems engineers who, after looking at this approach, suddenly, you know, it's like a light bulb going off. Oh, I get it. I see what you're trying to do there. I don't know mm-hmm. why we didn't do that.
1: Mm. So, Yeah. Interesting that the system science, in a sense, is, is uh, catching up, or the engineers are catching up on the system science, even after being in the field for a long time to, to get to those fundamental principles, which is, again, one of the great uh, gaps that this this textbook does such a great job of, of filling. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time. You've been most generous with us. Our final question, you've already alluded to it already. We always ask what you're working on now. Is there? Do you want to say a little bit more about the new book, or is there anything else you want to draw our attention to that we can expect uh, coming from you in the in the not so distant future?
0: Well, that book is pretty much it. I'm I'm sole author and so it's taking me a little bit longer to to, uh, hash everything out. I would say I'm about three quarters done. My publisher wants to know why I'm not completely done. Mm. But uh, I expect it to be coming out in the next two years. And um, it will go into considerable detail Using those the principles basically, so the, the for example the information and knowledge principles, uh, working those out in what that means in terms of uh, constructing a knowledge base, for example, for right. So I, I think uh, yeah it's it's in the works. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, we will look forward to that. And thank you so much for uh, the wonderful work of you and your your co-author, Michael Calton on this uh, amazingly rich uh, textbook that I think will serve uh, for many years to come as a really authoritative, uh, authoritative book for the field. Uh, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to my interview with George Mobus on the New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network.